Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we dig a little deeper into your word today, we want to consider what it means to be radically spiritual. And uh, we pray that, guided by your word, that we will learn a few things, that those things will find good soil in which to grow to bring forth the fruit that you desire. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I was at a pastor's conference a few years ago, and one of the pastors that was leading this little group of pastors said that in his opinion, most Christians were living shallow, unspiritual lives. And then he said something that really kind of got me. He said, quote, if you can leave a worship service and five minutes later start talking about sports or cars... You haven't been in the presence of God. Well, my wife knows that I often promise not to talk at pastor's conferences because I sometimes get a little worked up. But I just, you know, because it's my custom to watch football on a Sunday afternoon, I had to ask a question. I said, how long do you need to wait after worship before you can start talking about sports? That's what I got. He just looked at me. I didn't get any answer. I just got a stare. Is not determined by whether you eat or don't eat certain kinds of meat. But he said that's more tied to the attitude you have in the process. Now, simply put, what Paul was saying is this. True spirituality is defined not only by how good you are, but more importantly, how good you are to other people. This morning, then, I I just want to look at three ways that we come out of the text here uh, to apply this, and and I just want to call them three evidences of true spirituality. And here's the very first one. True spirituality is evidenced by love. Just that simple. It's evidenced by love. If you want to become truly spiritual... You need to show some love. I mean, after all, what does the Bible say? God is love, and we want to be more godly. John 3.16 says, For God so loved. It said that while we hated God, He was still loving us. If we want to be like Him, we need to be more loving. We need to express that. And there are some ways in which you can do that. I mean, true spirituality, you know, just love if you want to be spiritual. Uh, One is just to be... um, committed to what I would call a goal of spirituality. We need to be able to say, stand up, and it's particularly hard in our day and age to say, I'm not going to let the world, I'm not going to let sin, I'm not going to let money, I'm not going to let enemies, I'm not going to let friends, I'm not going to let families stand in the way of me getting to know Jesus more and more every day. Now, in order to do that, we've also got to be disciplined. We've got to be able to govern our lives and sometimes force ourselves at times to not do what we kind of like we'd feel like to do and give up some things. And there's a certain amount of discipline that's involved in living the Christian life of love. The other thing is we need to be consistent in how we show this love to other people. We need to make a regular habit of things. Now, most of you probably already got habits. You got good ones, you got bad ones. Uh, Which one would be easier to get rid of, a good habit or a bad habit? 
Well, all kinds of people have done studies about that, like how many days it takes for you to do something before it actually becomes a habit. They've done studies to show that once you've got a habit, good or bad, how long does it take to get rid of it? But there are habits we ought to be involved with. We call them spiritual disciplines. Uh, We need to make a regular habit of prayer, a a regular habit of Bible study, a regular habit of worship, uh, a regular habit of serving God. Now, these are not things that you can do half-heartedly. These are not things you just do when you feel like it. But you need to learn to do it consistently. I'm not sure I've got to this point yet with the confirmation class, but uh, sometimes I always ask them, what would you consider to be a faithful church member? And that's kind of uh, an open-ended, loaded question. I mean, what does it mean to be a faithful reader of the Bible? What does it mean to be faithful in your church attendance? Now, I've asked this question of young people often enough in my life, back when I was still teaching high school, when I deal with other youth, the answer that often comes is, well, faithful church attendance would be as long as you're there more often than not. So, meaning what? Well, 50% or more of the time you're there. You know, about 50% of the time you read your Bible, about 50%. And then I always ask the next question. You know, if it was Maddie in the class and Maddie said, Well, more often than not, and I might say this, Maddie, do you ever think you're going to get married someday? She might go, yeah, you will. (laughs) And I said, what would you think if your husband only came home more often than not? About 52% of the time. Would he be considered faithful? No. You know, Gage, you going to ever have a car someday, a truck? Yeah. You ever going to have one, car, a truck, something like that someday? What would you think if it only started every other day? Would that be faithful transportation? I'm just saying it takes discipline. We've got to be consistent, and it even comes down in how we treat one another. Now, in that also, that means that we've got to be teachable. I don't think anybody is born loving. Now, those of you who got little ones, I hate to say that, but those are some of the most selfish little creatures in God's kingdom. Give me, give me, give me, give me, all the time. You know, they express it in a variety of different ways. But we need to be teachable. We need to become students of the Word. We need to learn what the Bible says about, you know, experiencing or expressing or evidencing love. To learn what, God, what the Bible says about God. Uh, to learn what the Bible says about holiness or forgiveness or marriage or child rearing or career ambition or any other avenue of life, we need to know the truth in order to live the truth. Elsewhere, Paul, writing to Timothy, he says, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the words of truth, to understand where this goes. But I'm going to tell you that as important as those habits are, reading, Bible study, prayer, all of that kind of stuff, Paul says, None of that is really the key to spirituality. He said it's not about accumulating knowledge or to be disciplined or to be committed. He said there's something even more important than that. He said you have to develop a heart that is full of love. Now I'm going to go back to the first couple of verses that Dennis read to you before. 
He says, now about food sacrificed to altars, we know that we all possess knowledge. But then he says, but knowledge does what? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. Now, a few hundred words later, if you can kept reading through 1 Corinthians, you get to chapter 13, which we often call the love chapter. You often hear it at weddings, where Paul said, If I have faith that can move a mountain, but have not, what? Love, I, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. So love is a primary component of the Christian life. Perhaps you've seen this before. It says, people don't care how much you know. They want to know how much you care. There it is. Experience of true spirituality. It's expressed or evidenced by love. See, the same can be said about God. His primary concern for your spiritual growth, my spiritual growth, is not how much we know, but how much we reflect His love to other people. You know, someday when you die and you stand before the throne of judgment, God is not going to look at you and go, Oh, wow, you really know your Greek and Hebrew. Or, Oh, wow, you could, you could really argue the authorship of Isaiah with the best of them. Or, oh, wow, you sat in the same pew for 57 years. God's not going to say that. That's not, that's not what he's looking for. He wants you to develop a heart that is full of love towards others and full of love towards him. So I'm just saying that true spirituality is not measured merely by how good you are. That's not going to do it. But how good you are to other people. God loves me. Therefore, what? I love others. Here's a, here's a second one. True spirituality is evidenced by empathy. Now, what is empathy? That's a good word. Empathy, according to the dictionary, is the capacity to identify with another person or an object. In other words, it's being able to put yourself in another person's shoes. I mean, maybe you heard that before. Walk a mile in somebody else's moccasins, I think was the way... Uh, the original thing was put up. It's to see situations from somebody else's point of view. Now, in discussing this whole matter of eating food that's already been sacrificed to idols, remember that Paul has already said it's not a sin. It's not a sin. But then he went on in verse 9 to say, but be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For someone with a weak conscience sees you with all of your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Well, in 1 Corinthians that Dennis just read to you, Paul also addresses what it means to be truly spiritual. It didn't talk about football, but it talks about food. Now, in those days, there was a really big debate about whether or not it was right for Christians to eat certain kinds of meat. Now, understand the Corinthian people lived in a very pagan society. 
there were lots of little pagan temples scattered around Corinth. And people would take meat and they would take them to those pagan temples and they would sacrifice those animals to these pagan gods. Then afterwards, that meat that was offered to pagan gods was put out for sale for a good price. There were some Christians who said, it's a sin to eat meat that has been sacrificed to a pagan god. There were some who even said, it's a sin for you to be buying stuff at that place because you're putting money into the hands of pagans. Other Christians quoted the Greek, baloney. <laughs> they said, that's superstitious. <clears throat> We're not bound by that rule. I mean, we've got freedom in Christ and we can eat sacrificed meat if we want to. <clears throat> i got to tell you, that was Paul's opinion too. But Paul had to take up this subject with this church. And i got to tell you, it's a little bit more than just whether you eat certain kinds of meat. What Paul says in our text, if we would paraphrase a little bit, is, you know, it's not sin to eat meat sacrificed to the idol, but before you do, you have to consider how your actions, how your attitudes affect other believers, particularly weak believers. Now, in our society today, Jason, how long could you live without meat? We make it about once, once a week to have a cheeseburger. We don't live very long without it. I mean, eating meat today is no big deal. Where we eat the meat is no big deal. Although I seriously doubt there's any place here in town, but I mean, I've only been here for four years, but if anybody knows that there's a place where they offer meat to idols in town, maybe I've missed it. But see, the principles, though, that Paul teaches in this passage are just as relevant today as they were <clears throat> some 2,000 years ago. And, and very literally, 1 Corinthians 8 isn't about eating food sacrificed to idols as much as it is about discovering the characteristics of what I would call radical spirituality. And see, Paul, we've already known this over three weeks prior, that he had a very radical approach to how he lived his life, whether it was radical honesty or, or whatever, a radical mercy we looked at last week. But he insisted that true spirituality is not determined by whether you eat or don't eat certain kinds of meat, but he said that's more tied to the attitude you have in the process. Now, simply put, what Paul was saying is this. True spirituality is defined not only by how good you are, but more importantly, how good you are to other people. This morning, I, then, I, I just want to look at three ways that we come out of the text here uh, to apply this. And, and I just want to call them three evidences of true spirituality. And here's the very first one. True spirituality is evidenced by love. Just that simple. It's evidenced by love. If you want to become truly spiritual, you need to show some love. I mean, after all, what does the Bible say? God is love, and we want to be more godly. John 3.16 says, For God so loved. It said that while we hated God, He was still loving us. If we want to be like Him, we need to be more loving. We need to express that. And there are some ways in which you can do that. I mean, true spirituality, you know, just love if you want to be spiritual. 
Uh, one is just to be um, committed to what I would call a, a goal of spirituality. We need to be able to say, stand up, and it's particularly hard in our day and age to say, I'm not going to let the world, I'm not going to let sin, I'm not going to let money, I'm not going to let enemies, I'm not going to let friends, I'm not going to let families stand in the way of me getting to know Jesus more and more every day. Now, in order to do that, we've also got to be disciplined. We've got to be able to govern our lives and sometimes force ourselves at times to not do what we kind of like we feel like to do and give up some things. And there's a certain amount of discipline that's involved in living the Christian life of love. The other thing is we need to be consistent in how we show this love to other people. We need to make a regular habit of things. Now, most of you probably already got habits. You got good ones, you got bad ones. Uh, which one would be easier to get rid of, a good habit or a bad habit? Well, all kinds of people have done studies about that, like how many days it takes for you to do something before it actually becomes a habit. They've done studies to show that once you've got a habit, good or bad, how long does it take to get rid of it? But there are habits we ought to be involved with. We call them spiritual disciplines. Uh, we need to make a regular habit of prayer, a, a regular habit of Bible study, a regular habit of worship, a, a regular habit of serving God. Now, these are not things that you can do half-heartedly. These are not things you just do when you feel like it, but you need to learn to do it consistently. I'm not sure I've got to this point yet with the confirmation class, but uh, sometimes I always ask them, what would you consider to be a faithful church member? And that's kind of a, uh, an open-ended, loaded question. I mean, what does it mean to be a faithful reader of the Bible? What does it mean to be faithful in your church attendance? Now, I've asked this question of young people often enough in my life, back when I was still teaching high school, when I deal with other youth. Uh, the answer that often comes is, well, faithful church attendance would be as long as you're there more often than not. So, meaning what? Well, 50% or more of the time you're there. You know, about 50% of the time you read your Bible, about 50%. And then I always ask the next question. You know, if it was Maddie in the class and Maddie said, well, more often than not, and I might say this, Maddie, do you ever think you're going to get married someday? She might go, yeah, you will. <laughs> and I said, what would you think if your husband only came home more often than not? About 52% of the time. Would he be considered faithful? No. You know, Gage, you going to ever have a car someday, a truck? Yeah. You ever going to have one, car, or truck, something like that someday? What would you think if it only started every other day? Would that be faithful transportation? I'm just saying it takes discipline. We've got to be consistent, and it even comes down in how we treat one another. Now, in that also, that means that we've got to be teachable. I don't think anybody is born loving. Now, those of you who got little ones, I hate to say that, but those are some of the most selfish little creatures in God's kingdom. Give me, give me, give me, give me, all the time. You know, they express it in a variety of different ways. But we need to be teachable. We need to become students of the Word. We need to learn what the Bible says about, you know, 
experiencing or expressing or evidencing love. To learn what, God, what the Bible says about God, uh, to learn what the Bible says about holiness or forgiveness or marriage or child rearing or career ambition or any other avenue of life, we need to know the truth in order to live the truth. Elsewhere, Paul, writing to Timothy, he says, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the words of truth, to understand where this goes. But I'm going to tell you that as important as those habits are, reading, Bible study, prayer, all of that kind of stuff, Paul says none of that is really the key to spirituality. He said it's not about accumulating knowledge, or to be disciplined, or to be committed. He said there's something even more important than that. He said you have to develop a heart that is full of love. Now I'm going to go back to the first couple of verses that Dennis read to you before. He says, now about food sacrificed to altars, we know that we all possess knowledge. But then he says, but knowledge does what? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. Now, a few hundred words later, if you can kept reading through 1 Corinthians, you'll get to chapter 13, which we often call the love chapter. You often hear it at weddings, where Paul says, If I have faith that can move a mountain, but have not what love, I, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. So love is a primary component of the Christian life. Perhaps you've seen this before. It says people don't care how much you know. They want to know how much you care. There it is. Experience of true spirituality. It's expressed or evidenced by love. See, the same can be said about God. His primary concern for your spiritual growth, my spiritual growth, is not how much we know, but how much we reflect His love to other people. You know, someday when you die and you stand before the throne of judgment, God is not going to look at you and go, Oh, wow, you really know your Greek and Hebrew. Or, Oh, wow, you could, you could really argue the authorship of Isaiah with the best of them. Or, oh, wow, you sat in the same pew for 57 years. God's not going to say that. That's not not what he's looking for. He wants you to develop a heart that is full of love towards others and full of love towards him. So I'm just saying that true spirituality is not measured merely by how good you are. That's not going to do it. But how good you are to other people. God loves me. Therefore, what? I love others. Here's a, here's a second one. True spirituality is evidenced by empathy. Now, what is empathy? That's a good word. Empathy, according to the dictionary, is the capacity to identify with another person or an object. In other words, it's being able to put yourself in another person's shoes. I mean, maybe you heard that before. Walk a mile in somebody else's moccasins, I think was the way... Uh, the original thing was put out. It's to see situations from somebody else's point of view. Now, in discussing this whole matter of eating food that's already been sacrificed to idols, 
Remember that Paul has already said, it's not a sin. It's not a sin. But then he went on in verse 9 to say, but be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For someone with a weak conscience sees you with all of your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. I had a conversation with the pastor friend this last week, and I said, could you give me an example of what that might be in today's language? He said, well, it would depend from town to town where you live. He said, but there may be bars and or restaurants in your community that there's really nothing wrong with eating at them per se, but if a weak brother or sister saw you walk in, may cause them to stumble in your faith. Now, I said, mean like Hooters? <laughs> and he said, that would be an example. And then he, he rattled off a couple back up where we used to live. <laughs> okay, I'm just, I'm just saying, you've got to be careful. I, I met a, I'll give you a really great example. I, I met a guy a number of years ago who told me he'd been a Christian for well, about eight or nine years. He also, in the course of the conversation, told me that his favorite form of relaxation was smoking pot. I said, oh, really? Do you see any contradiction at all between Scripture and smoking dope? And he says, no, in fact, the Bible allows it. All right, really? Where, where's that? I must have missed that part. Well, he says it's way back here in the book of Genesis. Genesis 1.29, God says, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. I give every green plant for food. And he says, as far as I'm concerned, that includes cannabis. And I said, hold on, let's go back and look at this verse because it says, for food, you smoke marijuana, you don't eat it. And he said, you've never tasted my brownies. <laughs> now, I want to emphasize something here. This guy was way off base, way off base, because you can pull any verse you want out of context and use it to justify just about anything you want to. I mean, I do not agree with his conclusion at all. But even if he were right, even if he were right, Paul's words in verse 9 would apply to him. Don't use your freedom to cause a weak brother or sister to stumble. See, as Christians, we have a responsibility to look at everything we do in light of of how it might affect another person. I mean, it could be said of smoking or drinking or dancing or a whole bunch of different things. It's not about how many questionable activities you can get away with as a believer. It's about being able to recognize that what you do at times may have an impact on other people. I mean, true spirituality is evidenced by love, first of all, but it's evidenced by empathy. It's seeing things from another person's point of view. It's not, again, merely how good you are. It's a question about how good you are to other people in expressing Christ's love to them. 
Now I want to go back. There's a lady by the name of Ernestine Bradley. Uh, she is the wife of Bill Bradley, uh, the former United States senator, or for people like me, the former uh, basketball player with the New York Knicks, Princeton University. Uh, Bill Bradley ran for president in the year 2000. Now, his wife, Ernestine, was born in Germany uh, shortly before World War II. Her parents were Nazis. As a child, she did volunteer work in Nazi hospitals, holding teacups up, she said, to the lips of wounded German soldiers. Her father flew a Nazi fighter plane during the war. Now, she, of course, is not a Nazi, and she has spent her entire life, according to her book, coming to terms with her roots. One of her very best friends is Rabbi Arthur Hertzberg, a Jewish scholar who lost much of his family in the Holocaust. But over the years, Ernestine and Rabbi Hertzberg have sought to understand the events that went on in World War II and have become very good friends. Now, I'm telling you that to tell you that when Senator Bradley decided to run for president, and you all know that if you run for president, they're going to dig up everything they possibly can about you. They talked about and wondered, would people label his wife as a former Nazi? But before they even got to that point, Rabbi Hertzberg came forward and addressed the situation, and he said, quote, Anyone making links to the Nazis will do it over my dead body. I know what a Nazi is. I owe the tragedy of my life to the Nazis. Ernestine is not a Nazi. She is one of us. Now, it's kind of interesting that a Jew would consider a woman born in Germany to Nazi parents to be one of us, but this kind of just revealed her ability to empathize with others and really the ability of him to empathize with other people. And though she did nothing personally wrong, she spent most of her life identifying with people who suffered the most. Now, Paul is telling us again in the text, if we want to be spiritual, we need to learn to put ourselves in other people's shoes. We must give thought to how our actions affect others around us. Now, I always think about Jesus. What does Jesus do? Jesus comes in this world, and he literally walks in our shoes. He understands what we're going through. He sees life through those human eyes. And being spiritual, again, goes back to not necessarily how good you are, but how you treat others. Well, there's a third aspect of that, and that's evidenced by sacrifice. Verse 13 says very bluntly, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Now, if you go a little bit backwards in the book of Romans, Romans 14, it says, It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that will cause your brother to fall. Now, Paul is saying when somebody else's spiritual health is at stake, you must be willing to sacrifice your freedom for their benefit. Now, in this culture that Paul was living in, I grant it's 2,000 years ago, eating food sacrificed to an idol was really a big deal. In our culture, it isn't a big deal at all. There are, however, and Dennis alluded to this before just in your, your introduction to the Scripture, 
you know, there are certain freedoms that we have that maybe we ought to approach with a little bit of caution in order not to cause a weaker brother or sister in Christ to stumble. Now, the question is, what freedoms am I talking about? Well, <laughs> they vary from tradition to tradition. I'll give you a little example. Uh, when I first came, I started going to a pastor's prayer group, and I got to know this one guy a little bit from one of the churches here in this area. And uh, he asked me if we'd go out to lunch one day, and I, I said, that'd be fine. And as we were talking, he said, well, he enjoyed it so much, we had to do it another time. Well, well in, in the course of the conversation, I realized that he comes from an incredibly strict religious background. Way more strict, way more conservative than, you know, us pious little Missouri Synod Lutherans. And, and part of what I learned about him is that he loves God with all of his heart. I mean, he really desires to follow Jesus. But he believes a few things that I would say that the vast majority of Christians don't believe. For example, even though he's not Jewish, even though he's not Muslim, he is Christian. He believes eating pork is a sin. And I just thought that was interesting. Uh, he knows I don't agree with this belief, and he probably knows that I eat pork. But if he were to eat pork, he would feel guilty. And to be frank, I believe this is because he's influenced more by his denomination than he is by Scripture. But regardless, when we go out the second time and I get to pick a restaurant, I do not take him to Big Jake's. I do not order a pulled pork sandwich and whoop it down in front of him. Now, I'm certain eating a pulled pork sandwich at Big Jake's is not a sin, but I don't want to cause him to stumble. Now, we could probably have a whole bunch of other different kinds of freedom. I mean, you may, be consider you may think that there are certain things for you that are okay, that they don't really conflict with the Christian life. In fact, there are a number of things that we kind of make big issues about sometimes that aren't even in the Bible at all, but that's not quite the point. And you may be absolutely right when you insist that we are free to do them. But see, the point here is that true spirituality, this is radical stuff again, is the willingness to sacrifice some of these so-called freedoms for the sake of fellow Christians. Now, on the flip side of this coin... If you take a great deal of pride in all the stuff you don't do, don't make the mistake that your lifestyle is somehow better than other people. I mean, just because you don't drink or you don't smoke or you don't dance or you don't go to movies or you don't watch certain TV or you don't listen to secular music or you don't wear makeup, that does not make you more spiritual than anyone else. Spirituality is not about surface behavior. It's more than just how good you are on the outside, how good you are. It's about how good you are to other people. So if anything you do causes somebody to stumble in their faith, I would suggest that it's probably better not to do it at all. It's for their spiritual good. But yet, I've taught this in the Bible class a number of years ago, and I thought, <laughs> I remember somebody saying to me, well, does that mean that if anybody disapproves of what I do, I can't do it, no matter how insignificant or stupid it is? 
I mean, does it mean that I let other people control my life? I mean, what if somebody tells me I can't play golf because that, that causes them to stumble? Or what if they say that they think it's wrong for me to consume caffeine? Do I have to stop drinking coffee? Now, how would you answer that? Well, you go back to the text. What does the Bible say? There's a distinction. Paul is talking about sacrificing for who? A weaker fellow Christian. Now, if anything causes a weaker, younger, spiritually immature believer to question the validity of his or her faith, you know, like eating idle meat back in the day, we should be willing to sacrifice in order to prevent that person from stumbling. Now, there are also many people in this world who are going to disapprove about just about anything and everything you do. Uh, I hate to say it, but some of those people are nothing but busybodies, and those people you can just ignore. Uh, now, if you think a sermon on radical spirituality, maybe you thought, man, radical spirituality, I bet this is going to focus somehow on prayer and Bible study and fasting and worship and stuff like that. Well, those are absolutely and undeniably essential to the Christian way of life. So don't make the mistake of thinking that the Bible says if you're nice to people, uh, you're going to be spiritual. It just goes deeper than that. And we all know that in living the Christian life, we strive to become, quote, good. Uh, we strive to become holy. I mean, that's what the Bible says. Be holy like I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Now, we understand what? Our sinfulness is not going to allow us to be perfect this side of heaven. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't, by the power of the Holy Spirit, clean up our act. Now, what do we call that? When Jesus initially cleaned up our act, we call that justification. What God does through Jesus on that cross washes our sin away. But then, what? We say we have the Holy Spirit in us, and the Holy Spirit does what? That's that thing called sanctification, which is the process of cleansing our life to become more and more Christ-like. See, being like Jesus is a whole lot more than just praying or reading your Bible or not going to R-rated movies or turning off the TV. It involves letting God's presence in your life bring out the very best in you and to bring out the very best in all of your relationships. I'd sum it up. I'd say, if you want to be like Jesus, it's not merely a question of how good you are, but how good you are to others in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that's kind of a hard lesson here. Kind of wonder, you know, what can we do? What can't we do? What shouldn't we do? And Lord, we certainly don't want to make any judgment on things where there are freedom. But yet, your word just asks us to take a step back. And to take a step back and look at some of the things that we do, particularly when there might be weak believers, weak brothers and sisters in Christ, and just say, for the sake of their faith, I can set aside a freedom. We think about what you did for us in your life. The Bible talks about how you set aside your glory. You set aside what you had in heaven to come and live in this world like us. You set it aside. You didn't claim 
what was yours. Lord, may we learn to do that as well. We not, do not want a brother or sister to stumble because of our life. Teach us to be loving people, but we know that loving people learn that from a loving God. And a loving God loved us enough to send His Son Jesus in this world who loved us so much that He died for us. He rose again. He sent the Spirit to help us each and every day become more and more like Him. In Jesus' name, amen.